This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome. You're listening to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us this week. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 141, entitled, Looking Further into God's Plural of Majesty in the Hebrew Bible. Over the last two episodes, we have been exploring the plural of majesty, which is the grammatical concept in biblical Hebrew that understands the occasional plural references of the one God of Israel as depictions of his excellence, honor, and power. In fact, scholars seem to be in agreement that the plural of majesty is the best explanation for these plural references in regard to God. And no serious scholar seems to have argued, to my knowledge at least, that these plural references actually indicate that Yahweh is more than one person, perhaps Benetarian or Trinitarian. Moreover, the frequency of references to God being expressed with the plural of majesty has made me appreciate the concept as something not as rare as I formerly supposed. The oneness and unity of God are preserved as we listen to scholars and grammarians when they speak about the plural of majesty. So scholarship is very important, my friends. In this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, we will look at more instances where plural forms are used of the one God. Plural forms that scholars argue are best understood as, you guessed it, the plural of majesty. First, we will look at how even references to God's holiness are in the plural, something that English readers are probably not aware of in light of how this is translated within our English versions. Next, we will look at poetic literature to see how God's role as the creator is sometimes expressed in plural forms without suggesting that there is more than one creator. Lastly, we will look into some of the latest texts in the Old Testament, namely in Daniel chapter 7, to see how even biblical Aramaic continue to express the grammatical concept of the plural of majesty. Throughout this study, we will listen carefully to what modern scholars and some of the best commentaries available have to say about what experts say about these plural forms. Will we uncover evidence that these plural forms debunk the oneness and unity of God? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is the plural of majesty in regard to Yahweh's holiness. So we're going to be looking at the holiness of Israel's one God. 
So the first passage we'll look at is in Hosea chapter 11, verse 12. And the Hebrew of this is going to be actually in Hosea chapter 12 and verse 1. But if you're looking this up in your English translation, it's chapter 11, verse 12. This verse reads in the New Revised Standard Version, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. So this version understands Judah still being faithful with God and walking with the Holy One, God being further described as the Holy One within the poetry of Hosea. It should be reminded to our listeners that the biblical prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets, are mostly poetry. Something like two-thirds of the prophets are actually written in poetry, perhaps even more than two-thirds. But in this particular passage, Hosea chapter 11 and verse 12, we have the reference to God, and the Hebrew word for God in this passage is El, which is unambiguously a singular form. But the word for Holy One is Kodeshim, which is the plural of the Hebrew word for Holy being Kodesh. So Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One, but the reference to the Holy One is described in the plural. But it's interesting that the English translations will Translate this as the Holy One, not the Holy Ones, but as the Holy One. Now the Nikot, which is the New International Commentary of the Old Testament on the book of Hosea, says, quote, It could be a plural of majesty and a reference to God in the previous clause, or a reference to the holy people of God. So this commentary is noting that the Holy One here is possibly understood as the plural of majesty, which would indicate that the one God is being expressed with a plural form to express how majestic he is, how honorific he is, how excellent he is. And it notes in this reference that it is pointing back to the previous Reference of God. Remember, Judah still walks with God, is faithful with the Holy One. And since God there is El, which is an unambiguous singular form, it's clear that this is not Holy Ones in the plural. It's a single God. But this commentary also suggests that the possibility is that this is in reference to Holy Ones in the plural, meaning the holy people of God. What I find interesting is that it doesn't even consider the possibility that L, being described with Holy One in the plural, is possibly even a reference to multiple persons within God. That option is not even entertained in this commentary. The only options that it gives is that it is in reference to God with the plural of majesty, or it is a natural plural not in reference to God, but in reference to the holy people of God. I don't think that second option is very likely because Judah being faithful to the holy people of God doesn't seem to make much sense. It breaks the parallelism. 
It breaks the flow of the verse. It seems much more natural that Judah walking with God and is faithful to the Holy One seems to reference God as the Holy One in Israel. Walking with God and being faithful are also uh, synonyms. So Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 12 seems to be a reference to where God in his holiness is described with the plural of majesty. And we can see this in some other places. Let's look at our next one in Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10, which says, The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. That's Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. So we have the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh being the beginning of wisdom, and the fear of Yahweh is described in parallelism as the knowledge of the Holy One. So fear is described as knowledge, and Yahweh is described as the Holy One. So we have Yahweh, and we have the reference to the Holy One, but just like we saw earlier in Hosea, the word for Holy One is Kodeshim, which is plural. But yet we don't see translations say that Yahweh is Holy Ones, suggesting possibly that there is a plurality within the one God. In fact, the Anchor Bible Commentary, which is in two volumes for the book of Proverbs, calls this reference to Kodeshim, to the Holy One, as an honorific plural. And I looked at a lot of English translations, and I'm not aware of any translation that regards this as an actual plural reference to God. So the Anchor Bible says this is an honorific plural, which is a similar way of talking about the plural of majesty. We give a plural form to Yahweh to honor him, not to reference an actual plural. But this is not the only reference in Proverbs. We have another one in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 3. This verse says, Neither have I learned wisdom, nor have I the knowledge of the Holy One. That's Proverbs 30 and verse 3. And so this actually sounds very similar to what we just saw in the previous passage of Proverbs. In Proverbs 9 and verse 10, it talked about the fear of Yahweh's beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And so now we're seeing here in Proverbs 30 and verse 3 that the author says that he has not learned wisdom, nor does he have the knowledge of the Holy One. So we have wisdom, which is paralleled with knowledge in both chapter 9 and verse 10 and in chapter 30 and verse 3. This seems to suggest a connection. But the reference here to the Holy One is in the plural, Kodeshim. Now again, the Anchor Bible Commentary notes that most medieval interpreters understood this as a plural of majesty. And Michael Fox, who is the author of the two-volume Anchor Bible Commentary on Proverbs, even notes another option that this one could be an honorific plural. So he suggests plural of majesty. He points to medieval interpreters that took it this way, but he says it also could be an honorific plural. He doesn't suggest the possibility that God is multiple persons. That option is not even entertained as a scholarly option. 
I should also note that the Halot lexicon, which is the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, a very, very good lexicon if you are interested in studying biblical Hebrew, the Halot lexicon regards these three examples, the three that I just read, Hosea 11 and verse 12, Proverbs 9 verse 10, and Proverbs 30 and verse 3, specifically as examples of the plural of majesty or plural of sovereignty. So even the Halot lexicon describes these three passages as the plural of majesty. I think that's very fascinating. Let's look at another reference to God's holiness, but this time moving outside of the prophets and moving outside of poetry into some narrative. This is in Joshua chapter 24, verse 19. And this passage says in the NRSV, But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve Yahweh, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. That's Joshua 24, verse 19. Okay, so we have a reference here that they cannot serve Yahweh. Why? Because he is a holy God. Okay, and so the reference to he being a holy God is ki Elohim Kodeshim Hu in Hebrew. So literally, he, God, is the Holy One. And then we have an independent singular pronoun, who, which is he, which is masculine singular. He himself, Elohim, is a he, a singular pronoun. But we also have the reference to God's holiness, which is in the plural. The singular is Kodesh, but the plural is Kodeshim. And we have the plural here. But it's very clear that this is in reference to one particular person. We have the singular pronoun, he. He is described as Yahweh, the Holy One, the Holy God. And in fact, the passage goes on and says that he is a jealous God. Again, using the independent pronoun, who. And we look at how this was interpreted by the earliest translators, which is the translators of the Greek Septuagint. We can see that they translated the reference to holy ones, the kodeshim, which is a plural form, in the singular. So in the Greek, it says, oti theos aios estin, because God is holy using the singular form. They didn't translate it in the plural as if there are multiple holy ones. They understood it as, very likely, the plural of majesty. So we can see there that God's holiness, which is something that certainly describes his magnificence and his excellence, is described sometimes in plural form. So we can see this across prophetic literature, poetic literature, and even narrative literature. And yet we're seeing all the evidence that suggests that this is best explained as a reference to the plural of majesty, or an honorific plural, and it's in reference to one singular person. Let's move on to our second point. Point number two is the plural of majesty in God's role as creator. This time we're going to be looking at references within poetry specifically. And of course, the 
level of exaggeration that poetry has allows us to understand these references a little bit better. First reference we'll look at is in Job 35, verse 10. Job 35, verse 10 says in the NRSV, But no one says, Where is God my maker, who gives strength in the night? That's Job 35, verse 10. So we have a reference here to God, which is Eloah. Remember, Eloah is the singular form of Elohim. Elohim is plural. But Eloah here actually has a plural verb coming from the verb asa, which means to make. And so it gets translated as a participle here as maker. Where is God my maker? Literally, where is God the one who is making me? But the reference to God is singular and the verb is plural. So it's not talking about gods, the single God. Eloah is singular. But what are we to make of this? Well, the word biblical commentary suggests that the plural is analogous for other words for deity, such as Elohim, which is a kind of plural of majesty, end quote. And in doing so, Kleins, which is the author of the word biblical commentary on Job, cites Gesenius's Hebrew grammar for support that this is a reference to the plural of majesty. So not only does he argue that this is a reference to the plural of majesty, he also points to a Hebrew grammar that we've looked at in some of our previous episodes also to support his claim. But he sees that the references to God that demonstrate the plural of majesty are not limited to Elohim. It could also be in God's singular form, Eloah which again is the single form of Elohim. But we have a plural form here, but no English translation that I am aware of translates this as makers. They understand this as a plural of majesty, and they all translate it as a singular maker. That's very important, because Eloah is a single person. It refers to one God. But of course we can see this in light of the heavy poetry in Job. To understand God as the creator and the maker indicates that God is extremely powerful and thereby the exaggeration of poetry can lead us to use a plural form. But the plural form does not indicate for plural persons, it is indicative of the plural of majesty in reference to God continuing to be one person. Let's move on and look at some more poetry, this time in Isaiah. Remember that the prophets are mostly poetry. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 5 says, Thus says God, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, and gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. That again is Isaiah 42 verse 5. And so I'm interested in this reference to God, who is Yahweh, who created the heavens, and it's this particular verb, stretched them out. Okay, so we have, thus says God, Ko'amar Ha'el Yahweh, thus says the God, Ha'el, that is 
El being the singular reference to God. We have the definite article there in Hebrew. The God, the one God that we all know, described as Yahweh. So this is a singular person, a single God, the God. But the reference to stretched out is actually in the plural. Now all the other verbs in here, created, spread out, gives breath, those are all in the singular. But now we have one of these verbs, which is in the plural. Is this in reference to multiple gods? Well, no. The answer is no. We have the God, Ha'el, Yahweh. The God, Yahweh. It's not even a reference to Elohim. You can't even argue that this is a reference to plurality, because El is singular. When we look at the earliest translation of this in the Greek Septuagint, we can see that this reference to stretching out the heavens was actually understood as a reference to the plural of majesty. So we can see in the Greek, utos leyi, kyrios otheos, and then we have the verb tixas, which is actually an aorist masculine singular participle for the verb to stretch out. And masculine singular implies that one person did it. Who did it? The God, the Lord, kyrios otheos. So the earliest translators translated this plural verb in reference to the God Yahweh in the singular because they knew that God is not consisting of multiple persons. God is one person. God is one. And the oneness and unity of God is preserved by understanding this plural reference to God as a plural of majesty. In the International Critical Commentary, John Golden Gay says that this might be an instance of an honorific plural, but he doesn't entertain the possibility that this could actually be a genuine plural, that multiple persons stretched out the heavens. That option is not even entertained. So we can see here that the awesome power and the excellence of God as the creator of the heavens and the earth and the one who sustains people by giving them breath and spirit is sometimes described with plural forms of the verb, even mixed within multiple singular verbs. But this is almost certainly a reference to plural of majesty or even an honorific plural, not to suggest that God is multiple persons. Let's move on in Isaiah. Isaiah 54 and verse 5 is our next reference. We're going to see much of the same. This passage says, For your maker is your husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. That's Isaiah 54 and verse 5. Now this reference is very interesting because we actually have two verbs used of God that are in the plural. And so we have the verb for maker, and also we have the verb for being a husband. Both of these are actually in the plural. I think that's, that's very interesting because no serious person would think that Yahweh 
as the husband, and this is a covenant metaphor, where Yahweh functions as the husband and Israel functions as the bride, no one would seriously think that there are multiple husbands, despite the fact that the word here for husband is in the plural. We also have the plural form of maker. So perhaps uh, depicting this in poetic and stylistic reasons, John Goldengay, and again, the International Critical Commentary, points out that the two participles rhyme and they share the same form. So it might be for poetic and stylistic reasons that we actually have Yahweh, Yahweh of hosts, being the maker, literally the one who makes and the one who functions as the husband. Both of those in Hebrew actually rhyme. And again, we can look at the earliest Greek translation to see how these forms were understood. Were they translated in the plural? Are these indicators that Yahweh is really more than one person? And the answer is no. In the Septuagint, we have Kyrios o Pion, which is the Lord, the one who makes, which is a reference to one person who makes. I think it's interesting that we not only have references to God being a powerful and excellent and majestic creator that in poetry is stretched to depict the plural of majesty, but also the reference to God being a husband is described in the plural. And yet no serious person would conclude that God is actually multiple husbands. No translation says that. Let's move on to our third and final point. Point number three, which is the plural of majesty in biblical Aramaic. We're looking at the Aramaic sections of Daniel, specifically in Daniel chapter 7, where we're going to have, I believe, four references to God being called the Most High, but the reference to the Most High is described in the plural within the Aramaic. So let's look at these references. I'll probably just read all four of them because they all four make the same point. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 18 says, But the holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. And so there we have in Daniel 7 and verse 18, we have the holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. We have these holy ones. But we also have that they're connected and related to someone called the Most High. And so in Aramaic, this is the word Elyon-in, which is the masculine plural reference to Elyon, which references Most High. But it's in the plural. In fact, this reference to the Most High is in the plural in all four of the passages we're going to look at here in Daniel chapter 7. And yet, no English translation translates this as most highs, as if God is actually plural. It is the most high. It is one person. Even the two Greek translations of the book of Daniel, there are actually two of them that are noteworthy for scholars to look at. first one is the Septuagint, and the second one is called the Theodosian translation. Both of these are very early. And both of them, which, by the way, are independent of one another, both of them understood this reference to Elyonin, which is masculine plural in Aramaic, for the Most High, in the singular. 
This is understood as one particular person who is the Most High. John Collins, in the Hermeneia commentary, describes this as, you guessed it, the plural of majesty. And he even relates it to the Hebrew word Elohim. He notes that Elohim is plural, and it often has references of plural verbs associated with it, and that the way of explaining that is the plural of majesty. And so he sees here that we have the reference to God being the Most High, also in a plural form. And he says, well, since it's like Elohim, it's probably also the plural of majesty. Even the OTL commentary, the Old Testament literature commentary by Newsom and Breed, they also regard this reference as the plural form reflecting the plural of majesty. So our best commentaries, best modern commentaries on Daniel, see this reference to God being the Most High as a reference of plural of majesty, not in reference to a plurality within God, or that there are more than one person who could be described as the Most High. Let's look at these other references in Daniel that make the same point. Daniel chapter 7, 21 through 22 says, As I looked, this horn made war with the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the Ancient One came. Then judgment was given for the holy ones of the Most High. And the time arrived when the Holy Ones gained possession of the kingdom. That's Daniel 7, verses 21 through 22. So again, we have the reference there to the Most High, which in Aramaic is El Yon-in, which is masculine plural. But the Septuagint and the Theodosian translation all translate this as the singular, the one single Most High One. And our English translations translate this as the Most High. In fact, if you were just an English reader of the Bible and you didn't know any biblical Aramaic, you probably would never even know that this reference to the Most High is in the plural. But it's understood universally as a plural of majesty, and it's translated as such. Third reference is in Daniel 7.25, which says, He, the little horn, shall speak words against the Most High, he shall wear out the holy ones of the Most High. That's Daniel 7 and verse 25. So I think this is interesting because we have two references to the Most High. The first one is actually singular. And then we see the holy ones of the Most High. Most High is back to plural, the Aramaic El Yonin, which is the plural form. And so when we look at how the Greek translators translated these references, because we have two different references to Most High here, both of them are translated in the singular in the Septuagint and in the Theodosian translation. And the last reference is in Daniel 7 and verse 27, which says, The kingship and dominion and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the Holy Ones of the Most High. That's Daniel 7.27. We have the reference to the Most High there, which again in Aramaic is plural, El Yonin. But again, the Septuagint and the Theodosian translation of Daniel have regarded this as a singular, and they have translated it as such. And every single English translation has translated this as the single Most High. Not Most Highs, but the Most High, the One Most High, because God is 
is one person. So, in conclusion, we have observed that the grammatical concept called the plural of majesty, which explains how plural forms are attributed to depictions of Israel's single God, appears to be far more frequent than originally considered. We first noted that the attribute of God's own holiness is one of the ways in which the plural of majesty is expressed. Multiple references to God, as the Holy One, were surveyed, where the descriptor Holy One is in the plural. This is regularly explained as a plural of majesty, or even as an honorary plural. But no scholar suggests that this points to a plurality within the one God. The plural majesty expressed in God's holiness shows up in poetic literature, prophetic literature, and even narrative literature. Second, we observe that the Hebrew poets sometimes waxed eloquently and portrayed the powerful acts of Israel's God in creation in manners that are also understood as the plural of majesty. Each of these references is located in sections of poetry, and that surely counts for something when it comes to interpretation. Even the description of God as a husband within the covenant metaphor came to be portrayed in the plural of majesty. Now one takeaway from this study should be the re-examination of how Genesis 1.26 is explained with the plural references to making man in our image, in our likeness. This passage is commonly exegeted as a reference to God talking to the heavenly host. But the possibility that this is simply a plural of majesty is perhaps more likely, especially since angels are probably not the prototype image after which humans are made. Lastly, we observe how the Hebrew concept of the plural of majesty continued to be expressed in Biblical Aramaic in the latter portions of the book of Daniel. The reference to God as the Most High on multiple occasions is portrayed with the plural form. And yet, the earliest Greek translations and our best commentaries on Daniel are in agreement that this is to be understood as a single God who is only one person. Now, upon reflection, I am surprised that there is not a single scholar commentary or Hebrew grammar that objects to the notion of plural majesty in favor of an argument where God is more than one person, perhaps Benetarian or Trinitarian. This argument is completely absent from any scholarly literature as far as I have found. Now, if you're listening and you know of a reference, please let me know, and I would be very happy to give it an honest look. But I sleep better at night knowing that scholars are in agreement that these occasional plural references to God are most frequently explained as 
the plural of majesty. Thus, preserving the clear biblical teaching that the only true God is one person. This is strict unitary monotheism. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Join us next week as we look at how the Old Testament even describes noteworthy human beings with the plural of majesty. Yes, you heard it first here. Human beings, sometimes in the Old Testament, are described with plural forms. That seems to be another way in which the plural majesty is being expressed. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the truths about the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. And you can support our podcast absolutely for free by sharing your favorite episodes, by rating us on iTunes, and writing a nice comment. If you feel led to support the podcast financially, you may check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. I want to offer an exceptional thanks to Dustin Williams for his post-production and editing of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. But I am Dustin Smith, and until next time, you folks, please take care and be safe.